One of the most remarkable facts about the universe is that our sun, which we typically think of as a normal star, is actually brighter and more massive than about 95% of stars in the universe. We think of us as being nothing special, but in reality, most stars out there aren't like the sun at all. They are smaller, redder, cooler, less luminous, lower in mass, and typically more active. They flare and are irregular in much greater frequencies than stars like our sun are. Instead of burning through their fuel in a few billion years and ending their lives in a planetary nebula and white dwarf combination, these stars will typically live for hundreds of billions or even trillions of years and will never emit a planetary nebula at all. In fact, there's a whole lot about the most common types of stars in the universe, these ultra-cool dwarves that are dramatically different from our sun. So what are most stars in the universe like, and what are their implications for habitability and life elsewhere in the universe? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. It's absolutely fascinating to think that what we think of as the best chances for life, because we know it happened on Earth, are other stars like the Sun with other planets at maybe the same distance of roughly the same size as our own planet. But if we're being honest with ourselves, it might be a much better idea to start looking around systems that are even more common than ours. And here, to help us understand what's going on with these ultra-cool dwarves with the most common types of star in the universe, I'm so pleased to welcome to the show PhD candidate and almost Dr. Anna Hughes of the University of British Columbia. Anna is a specialist in ultra-cool dwarfs and has worked on the TRAPPIST-1 system in particular, on radio emissions coming from these, and a whole lot more. Anna, I'm so pleased to have you here, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Ethan. I'm excited to be here. So I want to get started right away. Um, when I think about these ultra-cool dwarves. When I think about these low-mass stars, the first one that comes to my mind is the closest one, is Proxima Centauri, which is the closest star to our sun, but is also only about, you know, 0.1%, about one one-thousandth as bright to our eyes as our sun would be if it were at the same distance. What What is going on with these low-mass stars to make them both more common than our sun, but also to make them so much cooler and fainter than our sun? Yeah, so... The commonality of ultra cool or of M dwarfs is a fairly recent discovery. So it had to do with taking these surveys of stars in our solar neighborhood. And we found that about 80% of them, 75 to 80% of them are M dwarfs. So this is the smallest spectral type. Now, ultra cool dwarfs specifically are the very, very smallest of the M dwarfs. So Proxima Centauri, which is the closest star to our sun, is right on the edge of being an ultra cool dwarf and being within the class of an M dwarf. 
So is there is there a difference? Like, where do we draw that line between what makes an M dwarf, which is somewhere between, I think, about 8% and 40% the mass of our sun, to what makes an ultra-cool dwarf? I know, I know that we call these spectral type M, um, but we we have further divisions than that. Yeah, so an ultra cool dwarf is at, um, it's usually classified as spectral type M7 and smaller, and it also includes brown dwarfs, which are these curious objects that are in between being a planet and being a star. So the umbrella ultra cool dwarf really means the lowest mass and also the coolest M dwarfs as well as brown dwarfs. So if I if I were uh, if I were just looking at these stars in terms of mass, and when I say star, I mean these full fledged stars that are undergoing you know fusion of hydrogen into helium in their core, as well as brown dwarfs, which are only undergoing what we call deuterium fusion, where they can't you know build up elements through the proton proton chain like happens in our sun or all stars but rather uh, they can only fuse a rare isotope of hydrogen called deuterium uh, plus other elements like I believe lithium. Uh, and there's this sort of low energy, low temperature fusion that happens there. So if I'm looking at this and I say, okay, if I'm between about 13 Jupiter masses and 80 Jupiter masses, I'm a brown dwarf. I can reach that core temperature of about a million Kelvin and start igniting deuterium fusion. And if I get all the way up to about 80 Jupiter masses or about um, 8% the mass of the sun, now I can start fusing hydrogen into helium in the core. I can do this proton-proton chain at about temperatures of 4 million Kelvin. Um, how big, massive, hot do I have to be before I'm not an ultra-cool dwarf anymore, before I'm, uh, I'm one of those red dwarfs, one of those M stars that, that you no longer care about? You're like, yeah, you might be cool, <laughs> but you're not ultra-cool. Exactly. So you would have to be around 3000 Kelvin in order to be just an M star, 3000 and hotter up to um, the M classification. But once you're less than 3000 Kelvin, then you're considered an ultra cool dwarf. So that's that's at the surface, right? Which is different than than in the core, because the core is where that fusion occurs. But the surface is what we can most easily observe. Yes, exactly. All right. So if I wanted to observe these ultra cool dwarves, what's what's the best way to do it? Is am I best off using an optical telescope and just looking for something that has, well, it's got very little blue light and almost all of the light is red? Or are there other techniques for surveying them? Because when I was back when I was a grad student, uh, we were just doing those surveys you alluded to of talking about, okay, like the recon survey was just happening and they were sort of doing that survey of the nearest stars to Earth, and they were finding, like you said, that about 75 to 80 percent of them are these M dwarf stars, that they vastly outnumber all the other stars around us, but they're also the hardest to see. And each time we do that survey a little deeper, we find, you know, an increased number of faint, low mass, brown dwarf, and other ultra cool dwarf stars. 
Yeah, so if you're trying to to get an idea of the sheer number of ultra-cool dwarfs, you're going to want to focus on the optical and the infrared wavelengths. So optical, like space-based optical telescopes are a great resource just to take account of how many there are. But when you start using telescopes at other frequencies, you can actually probe different processes that the star is undergoing. So it really depends on whether you're looking to understand the star, the ultra-cool dwarf's activity, or if you're looking just to count how many there are. I see. So so you're saying like, look, okay, Ethan, if you if you think back to like, you know, when you were first learning about that, that was the let's find them and count them. And that's and that's great if you're like some sort of stellar botanist. But if you really want to understand what's going on, you've got to start looking in more detail. And that means looking in different wavelengths. Now, I know you've specialized at looking at these stars in radio wavelengths. And I'm, I'm going to call them all stars, even though brown dwarf stars aren't technically stars. Um, what does looking in the radio enable us to learn that looking in just like the optical or the infrared won't teach us? So radio observations specifically are fantastic for probing magnetic processes that the star is undergoing. So in the frequency range where I'm concerned, there's two dominant magnetic processes. One is called the electron-cyclotron maser instability, which I know is a mouthful. But it's essentially uh, these global aurora, and we see them in all of the solar system planets that have a magnetic field. So it's kind of similar to what you would expect from a planet to act like. But then the other magnetic process that I look for is called gyrosynchrotron radiation. Now gyrosynchrotron radiation, we think, originates in these surface events called magnetic reconnection events. And we see these on stars. So ultra-cool dwarfs are, are quite interesting in exhibiting behaviors that, it, that are characteristic of planets and also sometimes behavior that is characteristic of stars. So you use these words like cyclotron and synchrotron radiation, and I'm familiar with those mostly from particle physics, where you say, okay, I've got a cyclotron or a particle accelerator of some type in a ring shape, and what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to put a magnetic field there, and if I hold out my hand, right, and I and I hold out my hand with my four fingers pointing together and my palm extended and my thumb extended, right, so that I make a, uh, so that my thumb is at a right angle to my other fingers, then I say, okay, if I have a particle, a charged particle moving in a magnetic field, then my thumb is going to point in the direction that the particle moves, right? And, and left hand is for particles that are positive, I'm sorry, left hand is for particles that are negatively charged, right hand for particles that are positively charged. Um, and if I point my fingers in the direction of the magnetic field, then my palm, the direction that my palm is pushing in, that's the direction that that particle that's moving along my thumb is going to get pushed in. And what I see over time, if the magnetic field stays in the same direction, and the force pushes the particle and causes my hand to turn sort of radially outward, like where my thumb turns towards the outside, then I'm seeing, oh, this particle is going to bend in a circle. And when a particle bends, a charged particle bends in a magnetic field, 
it emits radiation dependent on its strength of its field, depending on the speed of the particle. Is that radiation that's coming off of it as this electron or other charged particle spirals around in this magnetic field, is that radiation what you can see with a proper radio telescope when you observe these stars? Yes, exactly. So with cyclotron emission, electrons are sort of gyrating in these horseshoe shapes around the poles of the star. But with gyrosynchrotron radiation, you're getting exactly that um, synchrotron radiation from an electron being accelerated along a magnetic field line. Um, so the difference between synchrotron and gyrosynchrotron radiation is just the energy of the electron. So for synchrotron radiation, there's a, the most energetic electrons, they're ultra-relativistic, and for gyrosynchrotron, they're only mildly relativistic. Oh, so it, basically, if you're if you're not moving at ninety nine point, if I don't have enough nines in my ninety nine point nine 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 percent the speed of light, then uh, then I'm the other type of radiation, right? I'm just the cyclotron radiation instead of the uh, synchrotron radiation. Sure. Yeah. So. Cyclotron isn't relativistic at all. You start getting a little bit relativistic, and then you're gyrosynchrotron, and you start getting ultra-relativistic, and then your synchrotron radiation. Nice. So we've, we've just learned a little bit of uh, relativistic vocabulary here, that you go from cyclotron to gyrosynchrotron all the way up to synchrotron. Is there uh, there's nothing there's nothing that's higher than that, is there? No, you can't. You can't be more energetic. It's not allowed. Oh, damn it, Einstein. Disappointing <laughs> me again. So um, so you make these observations, and you know what do we learn about these stars and the magnetic fields that they have? Is it similar to our own sun, where we sort of have these magnetic field lines that, uh, that make these loops and come out of the star, but they're very chaotic, and they... They don't have like a coherent field or are they more like something like planet Earth where you have a big dipole magnet around these stars? So there's a, a couple different models and we don't really know yet, but doing radio observations to try to probe the magnetic processes can help us understand what exactly is going on with their magnetic fields. So they may well be similar to planets and have these global neat magnetic fields or in other models of ultra-cool dwarfs, they have these messy, non-axisymmetric fields, which means that their field isn't aligned with the axis of rotation of the star. And the, these magnetic fields are constantly having their field lines broken by the messy rotation and reconnected, which is prompting frequent reconnection events on the star's surface. And one way that we can look for this kind of magnetic field is to look at radio observations to probe specifically for gyrosynchrotron radiation, because we think that gyrosynchrotron radiation is indicative of magnetic reconnection events. So if we see strong gyrosynchrotron emission from the star, that can mean that the star's magnetic field is indeed this chaotic mess that's constantly breaking and reconnecting, and that's what's um, accelerating the electrons to mildly relativistic energies and causing them to release the radio emission. Now, when that happens for our own sun, um, I, I, I think back to the original Ghostbusters and I think that's bad, 
right? And <laughs> and why is that bad? It's because when you have these magnetic reconnection events occurring on the sun, that can often lead to uh, events, solar events, uh, what we call space weather. And those solar events can uh, potentially have effects like they cause coronal mass ejections or solar flares or, you know, other energetic events that cause either the emission of radiation or particles or both. If I'm on a planet that is experiencing a very active star, right, that's experiencing just a deluge of these events far, far more frequent than what our sun puts off and far more energetic than what our sun puts out. Um, isn't that like bad for a planet if we hope to have something like life on it or biological processes or an atmosphere that persists over time? Is that Am I am I going too far in my assumptions here or are these magnetic reconnection events evidence that oh these stars must be really active in terms of flares and ejection events and other you know things that that we generally look at and say hmm maybe maybe that's bad um, you're definitely not going too far with that. Yes, that we believe that planets that are in orbit around M dwarfs and ultra cool dwarfs that are very active are essentially cooked. There's very, it's very hard to see how life could arise on these planets because the stellar activity can both erode the atmospheres and even strip them away altogether. And it's even worse for planets that are orbiting within the habitable zones or region that can support liquid water of um, planets that are around late type M dwarfs or M dwarfs in general because they're orbiting much closer to their star because their star is very cool. So you need to be very close to be warm enough to have liquid water. But because they orbit so close, they're extra vulnerable to the star's activity. So not only are these stars typically more active than our sun, they also have their habitable zones much closer in so their planets are exposed to more of that activity. Yeah. And when we look at, you know, the majority of planets that we found through missions like Kepler or TESS, uh, where transits are common, um, that's where we find the majority of our planets is around these M dwarf stars, not necessarily the ultra cool ones, but all the M dwarfs. They they have the greatest number of planets that we found. And we find, like you say, that overwhelmingly we find them in very short period orbits we find orbits that take like maybe uh five to 15 days to complete a revolution instead of earth which takes 365 or even mercury which takes 88 to orbit so these planets are very close to their parent stars and if they're flaring and you're closer to it you know the way this works is if i'm half the distance um to a star versus twice as far away then i'm actually going to get four times the amount of radiation incident on me because the radiation as it goes away from the star it spreads out in a sphere so if i'm talking about something that is going around the plant going around its star in just a few days uh, we're talking about something that's very close we're so talking about something that might be getting you know 
hundreds of times the radiation as a planet would if it were at Earth's distance from that star. Um, again, I, I want to ask you, like, that that's bad, right? When you say cooked, I, I think of a planet like Mercury, which already has no atmosphere with its 88-day orbit around our sun. Are we expecting the situation to be even worse around these planets in the so-called, and I'm going to say so-called now, habitable zone around these ultra-cool dwarfs or M-dwarfs in general? Yes. So the closest planet, the closest exoplanet to our solar system um, is actually around the closest star to our sun, which is Proxima Centauri. So it has a planet, Proxima B, that's in its habitable zone. And again, quotations around habitable zone, because there are a few definitions of that. But Proxima B, the planet around Proxima Centauri, is orbiting its star about 20 times closer than Earth orbits the sun. Now, if it has a flare that's 10 times larger than the kind of major solar flares that we see from the sun, and we have seen major solar flares or major stellar flares from Proxima Centauri, then it would be blasting the planet Proxima B with thousands of times the radiation that we receive from our sun during its flares. Is is that bad? Is thousands of times the radiation bad? Or is it only bad if it occurs in a particular spectrum of wavelengths? Because I can imagine that, you know, okay, if we get a lot of energy, but it's all in the radio part of the spectrum, uh, that's not really going to do anything to the particles in our atmosphere if we have an atmosphere. But if I do get all that energy and some of it is energetic, like it's ionizing radiation, like ultraviolet X-ray, gamma ray, or, you know, that's as high as you get, um, then I can look at that and say that's probably a really bad event for atmospheric stripping. Yes. Yeah, so a planet can endure some um, ultraviolet radiation. And in fact, there have been quite a few papers that have argued that UV radiation may be necessary for the development of life in the first place. But it's actually, in the case of gyrosynchrotron radiation and these reconnection events, actually the most damaging outgoing space weather is high energy particles that get accelerated during the reconnection events. So these are usually protons. And when you have a population of electrons, that are accelerated to mildly relativistic energies, they're putting off radio emission. Now that radio emission isn't really gonna be damaging to the planet because it's so long wavelength, it's not really a problem. But it's the high energy particles that are also produced in these magnetic reconnection events that are the worst for planetary atmospheres. They can erode the, the ozone in the atmosphere and they can strip it away altogether. Interesting. This this appears to be, as far as I know, this is consistent with what uh, NASA's MAVEN mission measured for Mars, that Mars experiences atmospheric stripping. And when you have like a solar flare or a coronal mass ejection or something else where it's not just radiation from the sun, but particles from the sun, like an intensi intensified uh, solar wind or solar wind-like phenomenon, that's when we start seeing, oh, like, and, uh, and the atmosphere of Mars starts losing its atmosphere at like 20 times the normal rate during these events. Is something similar to that happening on these exoplanets? I mean, not that we can measure it directly, but is that what we we presume is happening based on the physics we know and the observations we can make? 
Yeah, so the, the tricky part in all of this is you have to assume that magnetic reconnection of events on ultra-cool dwarfs are similar to reconnection events on the sun in order to infer the outgoing particles, the outgoing high-energy particles from what we can measure, which is the radio emission due to gyrosynchrotron radiation. Now, because the sun is the only star that we can measure close up like that, we don't actually know for sure if a reconnection event on an ultra-cool dwarf actually emits the same energetic particles in proportion to the gyrosynchrotron radiation that we see from the sun. But it's the best thing that we have to go off of. And if it's true that the reconnection events on ultra-cool dwarfs are similar to what we see in our sun, then we're going to be seeing tons of outgoing high-energy particles inundated on the planets that are in orbit around ultra-cool dwarfs that are radioactive. Interesting. And and you mean radioactive, like active in the radio, not radioactive <laughs> yes. in the other meaning of radioactive. Yes, I actually forget that radioactive has a different meaning, because in my mind, it just means that a thing is emitting radio waves. Now, we've got some very exciting astronomy vocabulary for people going on here. Um, now, this is this is kind of interesting to me because the observations you're talking about making, um, you know, yes, obviously we'd love to be able to measure for the sun what we measure for the sun for other stars, and we can't. But even being able to measure um, the radio emissions at the level of detail we've been able to measure them for these M dwarf stars, for these ultra cool dwarfs, um, that's a relatively new capability that we have. And that's driven by advances in, I, I want to say, these arrays of radio telescopes, uh, in particular by something like ALMA in the Chilean Andes. Now, have you gotten a chance to observe with ALMA or to use the ALMA data? And have you had a chance to sort of compare the observations you can get with a telescope array that powerful to the ones from uh, other less, um, well, with other telescopes, for example? Sure. So because ultra-cool dwarfs are so faint, and they're very, very faint at radio, there's very few radio telescopes that have the sensitivity necessary in order to detect them, even if they are active at radio. So the telescopes that come to mind are um, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is ALMA, as you mentioned, in Chile, and I have used ALMA. There's also the Very Large Array, the VLA in New Mexico, which if you've ever seen the movie Contact, it was featured in that. And there's also the late Arecibo, which has recently, um, tragically, been uh, decommissioned and cracked. Yeah, you're but the uh, you're the first guest I've had who's uh, who's been on the program who knows something about radio astronomy, who uh, who's been on since that has happened. Um, do you wanna do you wanna maybe comment on that about what the loss of this observatory means for radio astronomy? Um, man, I I haven't used Arecibo, but I have benefited from Arecibo observations. So Arecibo has been able to identify through surveys of ultra cool dwarfs which ones are active at radio frequencies, and these were published in the early to to like. I don't know, 2010s, so early 2000s to 2010, these surveys by Arecibo. 
Yeah, that's um, that's back when Arecibo was only forty five years old, as opposed to uh, you know I think I think it was what like fifty seven when it finally uh, had the instrument cables break and the instrument the giant instruments basically fall onto the dish and um, well that's that's the end of that. Yeah, I feel like it's a, it's a huge loss for radio astronomy, um, but we did see it coming because it was quite old. I think it's also a huge loss for Puerto Rico. So from what I've heard, it seems pretty standard if you live in Puerto Rico to travel to the telescope at some point, maybe for like a class trip to get to see it. And it, I think it's a pretty devastating loss to lose that telescope. Yeah, I really hope that, uh, you know, because it, it is sort of a unique location down there. I really hope that this is not the end of astronomy in Puerto Rico, and I hope that uh, I hope that they do get a new instrument there, where where we can continue to not only do the science, but to have that scientific presence there on such an important scale. Um, but we'll we'll see how how it goes. But I'm I'm definitely in the same camp as you that I I. I don't want this to be a loss to the community, the local community, as well as the scientific community. Certainly, I don't want it to be one that's permanent. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the one of the more interesting systems that we've managed to start and get some uh, outstanding data from, and I know you've gotten a chance to work on that system as well, is this specific system known as TRAPPIST-1, which was, you know, when it was announced, um, I was sort of like, my mind was sort of boggled by this, that all of a sudden out of the blue we had discovered this new star system that was just 40 light years away and there were seven roughly earth mass planets around it around this m dwarf system around this very cool faint red dwarf star uh, and that maybe three of the worlds were close enough to the star that they were probably you know roasted on the near side and probably had no atmosphere and then maybe the furthest two were were cold and frozen um and then you have those couple of worlds sort of in the middle those i think the fourth and fifth planets from the star but you'll correct me if i've got that wrong that might be in what we, you know, what we hold our nose and blindfold ourselves and feel around in the dark and call the habitable zone there. Um, I was sort of like, just my mind was boggled that, wow, if we can actually get lucky enough that the plane of this solar system's planets aligns with our line of sight and there's seven rocky planets around it, um, what else is out there around all these other ultra cool stars that don't happen to have this serendipitous alignment? And what does that mean for all of the chances out there that, you know, that something interesting chemically or biologically is going on there? It's extremely hard to quantify the chances. Um, so I'm, I'm very hesitant to say something um, qualitative there. But we're not going to get are... you holding your hands out at your side, telling me it's aliens. <laughs> You're not going to get an aliens statement out of me. Um, but Trappist-1, I love as a system. It's probably my favorite star as well. So Trappist-1 has seven um, 
Earth-like, and by Earth-like I just mean similar in mass to the Earth planets. And um, three of those, so I believe it's E, F, and G, when we start naming them starting at TRAPPIST-1b, are within the habitable zone. And there have been some papers that have argued that um, even further out, or I think a couple closer in, could potentially be habitable. Now we don't know how common systems like TRAPPIST-1 are, but because there are low chances that you're able to, to detect these planets because we have to be seeing them head on with the transit method, it's very well um, true that these planets could, these kinds of systems could be quite frequent around ultra-cool dwarfs. They certainly are around M-dwarfs. Now, now that's kind of interesting. Um, because they're so faint, these ultra-cool dwarfs, they must be they must be sort of hard to measure because when we when we look at the uh, sort of brighter M-class stars, the brighter red dwarfs, and we have a planet passing in front of them, right, that planet is going to block out a fraction of the light. So if the planet covers 1% of the star's disk, then it's going to block out about 1% of the light. So you have to be sensitive enough in your telescope technology to be able to measure the difference between 100% brightness for that star and 99% brightness for that star and to measure those changes over time. Now, if you've got an ultra-cool dwarf that is much, much lower in brightness, and you can only detect a tiny, tiny amount of brightness coming from it, then finding that same percentage dip, finding a 1% dip in its brightness, that has to be a much harder task than finding it for a brighter object. Because one of the things that kind of bothers me and I'm probably not the only one, is to know that the physical size difference between Jupiter and a brown dwarf and a low-mass M dwarf and a high-mass M dwarf is kind of negligible. They're all about the same physical size. The big difference is in luminosity, is in their brightness. So how can we, or can we at all with current technology, detect exoplanets around these ultra-cool dwarves? Do we just have to assume at this point that, that those planets are there and we don't have the detections yet? Or is there some clever technique that we can leverage to, to actually reveal them? So this is a little bit outside of um, my realm of expertise, but I do know that it's certainly possible to detect a planet using the transit method around an ultra-cool dwarf. It is going to be... Um, um, a, a bit harder to, to identify these candidates, but you can see the changes in orbits of the planets around these stars. If you see, if you identify one or two planets, you might notice that their orbits are changing. And you might notice that that way that they're changing is consistent with another planet tugging on them. Um, so I believe these are called transit timing variations, where you're looking at the, the orbital dynamics of the planet that you have identified to identify additional planets in that system. 
Okay, I know, I know that we were able to detect the very first exomoon candidates by doing that, that you would say like, oh, okay, well, sometimes the planet is a little bit ahead and sometimes it's a little bit behind, but it does this in this periodic fashion. And that would be, you know, that would be indicative of an exomoon where the moon sort of tugs on the planet and moves it ahead or backwards by a little bit. I can imagine very easily that the presence of another planet planet would exert those gravitational tugs. After all, that's how we found the planet Neptune way back in the 19th century was by looking at Uranus and saying, oh, well, Uranus is moving faster than Kepler's laws predict during this time. And then for the next 20 years, Uranus is moving at the right speed. And then for the next 20 years, Uranus is moving too slowly. So what's going on? Oh, well, maybe there's an outer planet beyond Uranus that's tugging on it and accelerating it and then only accelerating it along our line of sight and then accelerating it backwards um, as Uranus overtakes it. And if that's the case, maybe we can do the math and look for the planet and a 1846 and there's the berlin observatory and there's neptune within one degree of where it was predicted to be so you know that that seems like a reasonable method but you do have to get good enough to detect at least that first planet around an ultra cool dwarf so presumably the biggest most uh, serendipitously aligned one will reveal itself and then by observing that over time you can sort of start inferring are there more planets out there based on what must be tugging on it yeah so i know that with the trappist one planets i'm not sure if they were all discovered with the transit method and then they noticed the transit timing variations after but i do know that you can observe transit timing variations with the planets in the trappist one system but the discovery of neptune this is very tangential reminds me of um, a kind of similar seeming situation that happened with Mercury a few decades later, where they noticed that Mercury's orbit seemed a little bit off. And their explanation was that there was an inner planet that was messing with Mercury's orbit. And this actually didn't turn out to be the case, but they had a name for it. Um, they called it Vulcan, I believe, that it was supposed to be inside the orbit of Mercury. But it turned out to be uh, general relativity that was altering Mercury's orbit and not another planet at all. Yeah, and what's kind of funny about that story is that it was the same French dude, Urbain Le Verrier, the guy yeah. who discovered Neptune, the guy who made the theoretical predictions that he sent to the Berlin Observatory, that made all those calculations about where Vulcan ought to be and where you should look for it, and you know, all based on all based on that exact same, you know sort of mathematics and if that mathematics had turned out to uh you know actually be reflective of reality we would have revealed vulcan um but alas it wasn't the case and it wasn't for another few decades until einstein concocted his general theory of relativity that we actually wound up solving that mystery for good but that is a yeah, fun story I, I Le Verrier for, for thinking that. And I think an important part of science is being wrong at some point. That's how progress is made by ruling out explanations. Do you, uh, do you ever worry about that with your own work? Do you ever worry about like, you know, wow, well, I am, uh, you know, 
I can't see everything around these red dwarfs, but I can measure this radio emission, and I know the physics of cyclotron and gyrosynchrotron and synchrotron radiation, and so I put together this consistent picture of what's happening. But do you ever wonder if you maybe are just fundamentally making an assumption you shouldn't be making and that maybe the conclusions you're drawing about what you're seeing and what it means do you do you worry about that being incorrect sometimes so i try when i start to feel like my research is getting um, too speculative i try to in my papers make caveats and just be upfront that this is the my best approximation of what's going on physically based on maybe like what we see with the sun but that's not necessarily the only explanation so it's I, I try to be to be straightforward and and say that this is why I think this, but there's lots of reasons that this could not be the case. And with my papers, I just present the radio data itself. I'll say, you know, I found a detection with Alma, or I found a detection with the VLA. This is the flux that we measured from the star. From that, if there's multiple radio observations, I can get the spectral index, which is just showing us how the brightness of radio emission changes with the specific radio wavelength. So sometimes it'll get dinner, dimmer when you look to uh, longer, shorter wavelengths. And when I start talking about consequences for planets, that's when things start getting a little bit more speculative. So I think the work is important, but I think it's also good to keep in mind that I could be just totally off. And I'm okay with that. Progress still is made when I'm kind of um, uh, doing my best approximation of what could be going on. Yeah, and that's that's something that I think is important is the data you've taken is always going to be useful, right? And the the analysis you've done is always going to be valid under the assumptions that you've made. And the systematic errors or sources of uncertainty that you've identified, they're always going to be needed. You know, we're always going to need to take those into account. The only thing that can really change that result is if there are other contributions that we haven't accounted for that are actually showing up there. And once we learn how to quantify those, we can fold those into the same equation and just make a better equation. Um, and then, you know, you might get slightly different results, but those results are going to build upon what you've already done. Those results are not going to say like, oh, well, everything that Anna did is, you know, trash and we have to start over. It's like, no, like this is this is incremental progress that she's done and there's going to be more incremental progress after this. We just don't know yet by how much or in which direction or due to what cause. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that TRAPPIST-1 is one of your favorite systems. Um, have you gotten a chance to look at that in the radio and what makes it so interesting when you combine what we know about the exoplanets from, uh, from the various methods we've used to measure them with the radio emissions from the central star? So TRAPPIST-1, I have gotten lots of opportunities to look at him. Um, I've used the VLA and ALMA, and with these radio observations, because the star is so dim, you have to stare at it for a very long time, so like six hours with the telescope in order to get a strong enough signal to noise in order to see the star if it is radioactive. And what's it's kind of interesting is 
I didn't get any detections of the star, and I still am like so fascinated by this. So most ultra-cool dwarfs are not radioactive, which means that TRAPPIST-1 is consistent with most ultra-cool dwarfs. However, from it not being radioactive, you can kind of get a sense of what might be the limit of high-energy particles that are incident on the TRAPPIST-1 planets. So if TRAPPIST-1 was active, I could take the flux and the spectral index of the gyrosynchrotron emission coming from the star, and I could use that to get a value for what the corresponding outgoing high-energy particles on the surrounding planets is. But because I only have upper limits, I only have, we looked at it, we got this kind of sensitivity, we didn't see anything, I can use that to say, this is the maximum amount of high-energy particles that could be incident on the planets without us having gotten a detection. Interesting. So you can you can basically do a calculation where you say, okay, from my observations, I can say, here's the maximum possible amount of flux that could be incident on each of these seven planets. And that's just a calculation you can do inferred straight from the data. And then you could say something like, okay, and based on that rate, assuming that rate is current and has been constant, um, how long would it take to strip away completely an Earth-like atmosphere? And that might be a very interesting thing to do to sort of say like, well, how long do solar systems stick around? If it takes, you know, 10 million years to completely strip away an Earth-like planet's atmosphere, then, then there's probably not life, at least as we know it, on these worlds. But if it takes a trillion years to do it, and the universe is only 13.8 billion years old, that's that's a very different thing. Is that is that a calculation you can actually do, or is that a calculation that you would never do because that assumes assumptions that are definitely no good? I wouldn't say that it's a, a calculation that's making too many assumptions. I mean, you're certainly making assumptions that um, gyrosynchrotron producing events from ultra-cool dwarfs are similar to those on the sun. Now, quite a few people run simulations of planetary atmospheres, so I think they would be the best people to handle this. I don't myself. I just do these observations and back out the outgoing um, high-energy particle fluxes. So I can't tell you what the sustained effect of the high-energy particle emission would be on the TRAPPIST-1 planet specifically, but simulations of stellar activity from M-dwarfs around close orbiting stars show that it doesn't take that much in terms of high energy particle emission to strip away the atmospheres. And I can use the results and compare that to what I see from the TRAPPIST-1 planets and say that the upper limit of high energy particles from the TRAPPIST-1 planets is significantly lower than the catastrophic value that's reported in these simulations. So when you say the catastrophic value, that means basically you'd you'd turn Earth into Mercury, right? You'd turn a planet with an Earth-like atmosphere into a planet with virtually no atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like 98% of the ozone in the planetary atmosphere got stripped away altogether from a, an event from the host star. When somebody did a simulation of an M-dwarf flare, on an Earth-like planet that was in the orbit, the habitable zone of that star. So there's this particular catastrophic value where um, we know that the effects of that on surrounding planets would would be absolutely um, destroying to their atmosphere. Well, let's uh, 
let's really hope that uh, let's hope that that these assumptions are good enough that we can say, you know what, um, maybe all of these planets aren't going to be catastrophically stripped. <laughs> certainly, certainly, um, I think there's good reasons to to think that's the case. To think that you know, um, there's there's no reason to think that we are just like that we're not going to see anything around them anymore, right? We Because that's that's a worry, right? That's a worry that, oh, well, if they're this close and the stars are active, then, then maybe there's just nothing left and there's no chance. But when you look at it and you say, oh, well, when I look at the radio that's coming from it and I don't see any, that tells me at most that I can have like this frequency of this energy particle coming from it and we still wouldn't have seen anything. Um, and that kind of means that, you know, if this is just typical of what goes on, if this is kind of what's always gone on, then why? Why would we, uh, you know, we? there's no reason to think that all the atmosphere would be completely gone. Do we have any idea how old the TRAPPIST-1 system is and how long these planets have been in orbit around that star? Oh, man. Um... I I don't think so. I'm not sure that we know when exactly the Trappist-1 planets formed. I would naively guess within a few million years, but I'm not sure exactly how old that system is thought to be. I think I think it's quite old. I think I read something that we we can date the age of the star and the star is somewhere around, you know, 7 billion years old or so. Yeah, uh, I I believe it's like 7.6 billion years. And, and there's some big uncertainties there. Yes. The planets themselves, I would expect to form within a million years, and then it would take a bit for the gas in the disk to dissipate, but I'm not sure how old the planetary system is thought to be. Okay, okay. I mean, normally we say, like, look, if you know the age of the star, then the planets are roughly the same age. They, they might be a little bit younger by, like, 1% or less, but... If something's 7 billion years old and the planets are, you know, sorry, if the star is 7.6 billion years old and the planets are 7.4 billion years old, we're not going to lose any sleep over like, oh, no, like, how could these planets? No, like, they're the same age. This is fine. It's sort of like how, uh, you know, when you're when you're 12 years old, if you date a 10 year old, people are like, this is crazy. But if you're a, if you're a 30 year old and you date a 28 year old, that's not such a big deal anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the planetary system is going to be younger than the star, but not by much. Right, right. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about um, sort of looking ahead now, right? We've got we've got the data we have and we have the instrumental capabilities that we have. But looking ahead to the future, um, what are you excited about being able to measure in the future? What, what sort of either instrumental improvements or technical improvements or new observatories uh, will be coming online and what will that enable you to measure? What what sort of open questions are you looking forward to being able to answer? 
So for my observation specifically, I'm excited about just expanding the number of ultra-cool dwarfs that have been observed at radio frequencies where we can see gyrosynchrotron emission. Because right now, less than 10 ultra-cool dwarfs have been observed in that range. It's because they're, they're so faint, it takes a really long time for a radio telescope to get that data. But I've been proposing follow-up observations of these stars so I'm trying to just expand the sheer number of ultra-cool dwarfs that we know are active and try to get an idea of what kind of strength of gyrosynchrotron radiation is typical or if gyrosynchrotron radiation is quite rare even from the radioactive ones. But outside of my research, I'm really excited for the James Webb Space Telescope because it's going to be looking at planets, specifically these high-interest uh, planets like the TRAPPIST-1 planets, to kind of get an idea of what might be going on in their atmospheres. Yeah, exoatmospheres are a really fascinating uh, and growing field of science uh, for two reasons. One is, uh, and, and James Webb will be able to do both of them for at least certain mass and size planets. Uh, one of them is because when you have a transiting planet passing in between the line of sight of its star and yourself, you're not only blocking a portion of the light where that planet's disk is, you're actually getting a little bit of that starlight filtering through the planet's atmosphere, if it has an atmosphere. And that could reveal all sorts of interesting chemical signatures. We've found uh, with current technology, I think we can measure like Neptune-sized planets around, uh, around stars that are maybe the sun's size and smaller, uh, and that's enabled us to find water on exoplanets in the atmosphere. It's enabled us to find a number of important chemical and element signatures. And looking ahead, I see the possibility of looking for possibly even bio hints or biosignatures in the atmospheres of these transiting worlds. But there's also the possibility of direct imaging, where the planet is at its farthest from the sun or from the star if you can sort of use a coronagraph or a different technique to block out the star's light, you can measure the light from the planet directly and sort of do this direct imaging and sort of learn what are the properties of this planet's atmosphere, what are its components, what else is in there, and you can even do things like seeing if it changes over time. Is there greening and browning of the world with the seasons? Are there shrinking and growing of ice caps? Are there complex clouds that change in coverage and density and reflectivity? And all of this we'll be able to gain just from a single pixel by, by measuring the light. And so when I think of the future of exoplanet science and exoatmospheres, um, like those two possibilities are just, they're going to open up so wide. And that's going to start next year with the launch of James Webb Space Telescope. Yes, um, I'm, I'm very excited to see what we discover about planet atmospheres. And while I probably won't be working on the observations directly, I'll probably stick with radio and maybe a few other wavelengths, I can help JWST prioritize what targets it'll be looking for. So I can say, you know, this ultra-cool dwarf is very radioactive. We see strong gyrosynchrotron emission from it, even though it has a planet, maybe don't look at that one. But I can also say with a planet like TRAPPIST-1, even though it has been seen to flare at um, visible wavelengths, 
I haven't seen radio or radio emission from the star, both um, looking for steady or quasi-quiescent emission, so this is just like constant emission, or I had a campaign to observe the star for 50 hours and I still didn't see evidence of radio emission from the star. So I can say TRAPPIST-1 is maybe a good place to look. You know, the star's activity, because it does have flares, makes it a little bit murky. But I, from my research, I would think that um, the TRAPPIST-1 planets do have a chance. So that's a good place for JWST to, to look. Now, that's really interesting to me. It, it sort of leads me to a follow-up question where um, you've got only a few of these active ultra-cool dwarfs, these radioactive ultra-cool dwarfs. Um, is there a difference between the brown dwarf subset of those and the red dwarf or the M dwarf subset of those? Is there a fundamental difference in the types or frequency or magnitude of the gyrosynchrotron emission that you observe? And if so, um, when we, like today, we talk about ultra-cool dwarf emissions, but do you sort of, uh, do you sort of think that there's some evidence that there might actually be multiple populations of these types of radioactive ultra-cool dwarfs? That's a fantastic and still open question. So only um, four ultra-cool dwarfs have been detected with high radio frequency emission that can be solely attributed to gyrosynchrotron radiation. Now I know that about 10% of ultra-cool dwarfs are radioactive, but this is in a frequency range where emission can be produced by both gyrosynchrotron radiation and the electron-cyclotron maser instability. So there are some ways that you can disentangle the two at low radio frequencies, but it's really the high radio frequency observations that pick out gyrosynchrotron radiation specifically. And the sample size is just so small that it's hard to say whether or not there is a difference based on the mass um, between the likelihood of gyrosynchrotron emission. But going, going based off of the presence of radio emission from ultra-cool dwarfs in general, the biggest dependency seems to be the rotation rate and not the mass. So it doesn't seem to, to depend on whether or not it's a low mass star or a brown dwarf. They're kind of the same as far as a radio emission is concerned, but the more rapid rotators seem more likely to have bright radio emission. So does that tell you something about this being a surface process rather than a core process, that this is this is definitely something occurring uh, in the outermost layers of these stars or almost stars rather than something occurring deep down, uh, because what we see, it seems to be dependent on rotation rate and these magnetic reconnection events rather than, you know, anything that would arise as a difference in mass or core temperature or fusion? It's once again a little bit of a tricky problem. I can say that the core's activity probably isn't related to its radio brightness. It probably is something going on with closer to the surface. But with the rapid rotation, it's a tiny bit tricky because we can't measure, or we don't have the rotation rates directly measured of all of these ultra-cool dwarfs. We go off of something called V sine I which is the projected rotation rate, but it's dependent on the inclination of the star itself. And inclination can play a role in whether or not 
the auroral or the electron cyclotron maser instability is detected. So electron cyclotron maser instability would say that actually it's the orientation of the star that's changing whether or not we're detecting it. But in the case of gyrosynchrotron emission produced by these small reconnection events due to breaking and reconnecting magnetic fields, it would be the rotation rate itself and not the orientation or the inclination of the star that's causing the um, likelihood of the star to be radio emitting. Interesting. Interesting. So um, what you're basically telling me is, look, we have this small amount of evidence and here are some things that we could say like, oh, it's suggestive. It's right. We, we can we can make some inferences, but really what we need if we want to know what's really going on here is we need more data. We need better data for the dwarfs we have, and we need more samples so that we can sort of look for what's correlated and how is it correlated, um, that, that basically we just don't have enough data yet. And although some of the ideas that we can throw out, uh, they're either more or less compelling at present, uh, you really, really want to just have the better data, and that's something that you hope to collect really over over the coming decade. Yes, exactly. It was actually only 20 years ago that we discovered that ultra-cool dwarfs could be radio-emitting to the kind of strengths that we would be able to detect them at all. So it's really a new subfield of astronomy. So... Um, when you say it's really a new subfield of astronomy, this one, this this leads me to ask you a question that you might not be able to answer. But uh, do you see, as better data comes in, as more data comes in, do you sort of see this possibility that new fields that are not fields of astronomy today will arise? Um, and can you? predict for us uh, any of those fields that might, you know, that aren't fields right now, but that a decade or two from now might might be a flourishing field in the area of exoplanet sciences around these ultra-cool dwarfs? Oh, that's tricky. Um, I think that as we, as we start to get a better understanding of... Um, of other other planets' magnetic or other stars' magnetic fields, that subfield which already does exist will start to flourish. Um, I'm trying to think. I can imagine we might start to see something concerned with the planets as well. So subfields devoted to studying exoplanet magnetic fields in detail that we just don't, as far as I know, have the sensitivity yet to really do. Interesting. So are you thinking that we might be able to, and I'm, I'm spitballing here, this isn't my field, do you <laughs> think that we might be able to sort of say, oh, well, um, we can find uh, exoplanetary systems that have a I don't know, a relatively large exoplanet in them, uh, we might be able to start doing auroral physics on 
on an exoplanet um, because of yeah. these events, or yeah. we might start to see evidence that actually the planet's magnetic field and the star's magnetic field are connecting, or those field lines are snapping, and and we can actually find a a stellar planetary interaction occurring there. Absolutely. So you see a similar um, a kind of thing in our solar system with Jupiter and its moon Io. Their magnetic fields are interacting and prompting. Um, emission from each other. And I can definitely imagine as we get more sensitive observations, looking at stellar systems with a known exoplanet, we might be able to see some kind of interaction between the two. I am speaking very off the cuff here because there might be new publications that I'm not aware of, but I believe that somebody tried this with Proxima b, um, which is again, this planet that's the closest exoplanet to us around the closest star to our sun, Proxima Centauri. I believe somebody looked for radio emission from Proxima B specifically. And my recollection is that they found no evidence of it. Right. Um, But like you say, finding no evidence doesn't mean it isn't there. It just means if it is there, it hasn't appeared at your current telescope's sensitivity with the current amount of observation time that's been done on it. it. Exactly. As we start to get more sensitive observations, I could certainly see being able to observe interaction between probably an M-dwarf and a close orbiting planet to be to be a field that, that could be flourishing. Now, is there something that, I don't know, um, is there something because these are faint um, but they're also uh, these small objects. Is there something that you can maybe find when you get increased resolution? For example, Alma is not just one radio dish. It's an array of like 66 telescopes spread out um, where there's a cluster in the center and then they're spread out over a larger volume. But the Event Horizon Telescope was able to leverage multiple observatories over the Earth, giving you the light gathering power of just the sum of the dishes combined, but gives you the resolution of the baseline between the different dishes. Is it possible that, I don't know, you could do something where you took the Carl Jansky Very Large Array and Alma simultaneously and maybe a few other arrays or giant telescopes and observe the same object simultaneously, could you obtain that type of enhanced resolution for a single dwarf? So you you can't really do the same thing that was done with like the Event Horizon Telescope to observe the black hole with um, these very dim point sources. So I don't think that we would be able to get a resolved image of it. Um, by using multiple telescopes together. What you can do is probe different frequency ranges at the same time. So if the star is radioactive and you're looking at it at say like two gigahertz, where maybe for the magnetic field strength of the ultra cool dwarf, you would expect to see both the electron cyclotron maser instability and gyrosynchrotron radiation. And maybe you're also looking at it at like 100 gigahertz with ALMA, where you would expect to really only see gyrosynchrotron radiation. And if you coordinated those two at those two frequency ranges, you can get a really, really neat and good idea of what the star is doing at that particular time. So that can really be useful for characterizing the gyrosynchrotron radiation, especially if it's variable over time. 
Oh, that's interesting. I imagine you could also, um, you know, you could also sort of characterize the energy spectrum of the electrons that come out if you have those multiple wavelengths, and that could maybe tell you some additional information about the processes behind these, well, I guess behind this radioactivity. Yeah, so you could you could get the spectral index. Probably you would be seeing optically thin gyrosynchrotron radiation. So that just means that you would expect it to be more dim at 100 gigahertz than it is at 1 gigahertz. But when you know the spectral um, index or the energy distribution of the electrons, you can also use that to calculate the um, electron or the energy distribution of the outgoing protons in a space weather event. So it's really useful especially when we're making that connection with outgoing protons during a magnetic reconnection event. You know, this is, this is a question I don't normally ask people, but you've got me curious. Um, when you take your, you know, when you take your observations of a star, is there anything that you, maybe you don't even share this publicly, I don't know, but is there anything that you secretly hope you're going to find is there anything where you're like you know i don't know that this is very likely but it would be revolutionary and fascinating to me if this showed up in the data if this event occurred and i got to see this like do you do you dream of like just catching a carrington style event in the act on one of these ultra cool dwarfs so I have seen a mega flare from an ultra cool dwarf at radio frequencies. These observations were taken with Alma, which was very cool, um, no pun intended. But I think if there's something like really crazy that I would want to see, it would be if we saw the radiation at like 100 gigahertz brighter than the radiation at 2 gigahertz, because then that totally flips on its head what the emission mechanism is. Maybe it's still gyrosynchrotron radiation and this star just is crazy variable. Um, so something like that I think I would really like to see is some kind of totally wild uh, result for my observations. And I have to say I do hope for detections, even though I know it would be bad for planets in orbit around ultra-cool dwarfs. So I was a little bit disappointed when I didn't see gyrosynchrotron radiation from TRAPPIST-1. But it's good news for the planets. Well, it's good news for the planet now. I I always wonder when we do that, right? When we're looking at these uh, at these stars that are you know older than the sun, even um, were they always as quiet as they are now, or were they active and loud in the past? And that, I don't think that's something we can really answer with with the. Uh, with the amount of data that we have and the number of stars that we have data on right now? Um, for, for ultra cool dwarfs, um, you know, I think there is a correlation between age and likelihood of activity, but it's really unclear with radio emission. Okay, okay. Now, one of the things that you've worked on um, is what they call pebble accretion. And I, I normally think of pebble accretion in the context of asteroids, which is extraordinarily different than anything to do with radio astronomy. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about pebble accretion and what that is? Yeah, so pebble accretion was the subject of my master's degree, which I also got from the University of British Columbia. So pebble accretion is essentially a 
planet forming strategy or method. So there's some big open questions in planet formation. And it turns out it's not so obvious how you get from small solids orbiting a star in a young disk to planets. Um, there's lots of, of um, hurdles that can happen along the way. So for instance, if you have two large boulders, they can collide with each other, break apart, not stick, and then go spiraling into the star. And then you don't get anything. You don't get any planet. Um, and, and this happens very efficiently at meter sizes. So it's called the meter barrier problem. And it's just kind of a mystery of how you get from small objects to boulders to planets. But planet formation by pebble accretion is saying you don't actually need that many boulders. If you just have a handful of boulders and a bunch of tiny grains in the disk, the boulders can sweep up the tiny grains in the disk efficiently enough that they'll start growing from boulder sizes to planet sizes. You know, this sounds this sounds eerily familiar to what we actually observed with Cassini happening in Saturn's rings. Is that, you know, yeah, you you see these, I think we call them moonlets. You see these little temporary structures forming in Saturn's rings, and they do. They most of them are tiny, and the tiny ones they 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 form and they get torn apart, and they form and they get torn apart. But once you make something bigger than a certain, and it's actually a pretty small size, um, they just grow and grow and grow until basically another thing comes along and smashes into them and blows them apart, or they just grow and now you've got a new moon there. I, I sort of think about, you know, forming planets in a solar system as just a scaled up version of that. Is that is that foolishly naive or is that actually not bad? Um, so... There's certainly going to be some differences in the distribution of grain sizes in an early solar system disk and around um, around a planet. And we also don't know for sure that pebble accretion is how it happened, but it does sound like a, a fantastic analogy. If it does happen by pebble accretion, it's probably quite similar. You might hit this runaway growth where a boulder has been accreting um, pebbles and growing and growing, and it just gets out of control and it grows all the way until it's a planet. Well, I I look forward to us learning more about this. You know, one of the one of the biggest questions um like 30 years ago was that we had absolutely no data about was how do we form planets and where are their planets and where's the possibilities for life elsewhere in the universe? And so if you were a if you were a young career scientist in 1990, these were like questions that, you know, like, okay, well, maybe, maybe before I die, these are things that I hope we can answer and have more than no data about at all. And now these are questions that, you know, the, they are still cutting edge science, but also we're, the needle has moved so far forward from where we were that this is like, we, we've taken tremendous leaps forward in a relatively short amount of time. Um, whereas this was, you know, this was such speculation that a lot of, you know, curmudgeonly people were saying like, oh, this sort of thing isn't even science. And we look at this now and we say, oh, wow, like, look at all we've learned and i feel like we're on the uh we're on the upswing of an exponential where really we can just expect an explosion in our knowledge of 
all of these subjects and these related subjects over over the coming decades. Absolutely. It's a combination of better observations and better technology to run simulations. You know, and that's that that's i think where things get most exciting where you have progress being made on multiple fronts simultaneously and they feed off of one another i i imagine that you know um like the advice i got from one of my first uh, grad school advisors was it, it still applies is that look when it comes to astronomy astrophysics whatever you have all these different things you can specialize in. You can do observation, you could do theory, you can do instrumentation, you can do data analysis, you could do simulations, you right, you have all these different things you can specialize in. And the better you understand multiple fields, um, the better you'll be able to synthesize those results together and maybe draw conclusions that people who are too narrowly specialized will be unable to even find. Um, yes. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to think of, of uh, you know, something good to say, but I feel like that was a fantastic statement on its own. Well, then there's no need for you to add anything else. Instead, why don't I ask you, because this has been a really fascinating discussion and we've covered a lot of ground and given our listeners a lot to think about, um, if you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with before we close the show. Um, yeah, so I think one of the biggest topics in astronomy right now that is really popular, especially with the public, is planetary habitability. And I totally agree that it's completely fascinating and it's very, very important. But I also believe that one of the most important parts of evaluating planetary habitability is understanding what the star is doing in the first place. Because you really can't take the planet out of the context of what star it's orbiting. And the stellar activity, while it's really exciting on its own, it's especially exciting when it's coupled with the fact that the star might have planets and what the planet's atmospheres might be like. So we've got this interplay that's happening between the star and the planet that determine its habitability. You know, I, I, I'm a fan of saying, like, if I took planet Earth and I just removed it entirely from the solar system, uh, not only would it be far less habitable than it is today, <laughs> but without a parent star to orbit around, it wouldn't really be a planet in the same way anymore. It would, you know, you could classify it as a rogue planet, but it would really just be sort of this frozen ice ball wandering through the universe um, without any external source of light, heat, energy, all the things that we think we need for life. Being, planet Earth being what it is, is because of its symbiotic relationship I don't know how much the sun benefits, but from at least its commensalistic me 
uh, relationship with the sun where it it feeds off of the sun and it doesn't seem to harm the sun in any way and i i think when we take a look at the planets and the stars that are out there uh we need to look at each one of them in context in the context of the star that it orbits i think that's that's an outstanding point because i bet you could concoct a scenario where if you said look I'm going to take the same mass star, the same size star with the same planet orbiting around it at the same distance. I can imagine some set of stellar properties where this star and this planet together are extremely well suited to giving rise to life. And I can imagine a different set of circumstances for the star with that same exact planet um, where that where life is virtually impossible or at least life as we know it is virtually impossible um is that one of those things that keeps you up at night or is that one of those things that you're just so excited about that you know look this is something that we're only beginning to understand now but decades down the road um we're gonna actually know what that connection is and i'm gonna be one of the people who helps make that happen yes i'm very excited to be contributing to this question of what makes a star habitable and what kind of stars tend to be habitable. Um, so the, this nominal habitable zone is a really neat and clean definition of where a planet would need to be in order to potentially foster surface life. But now that we know that there's a lot more to it, there's kind of no going back, right? So it's just expanding more and more on what we think makes a planet habitable. Well, that's fascinating and wonderful. And remember, everyone, you heard it here first, that answering these scientific questions that we were investigating initially, they don't just lead to answers to those questions and an increase in our knowledge. They also lead to us asking better questions that we can then go out, look to the answer, look for the answers to them and not only learn those answers, but to ask even better questions in the future. In the quest for life in the universe beyond Earth and beyond our solar system, it's quite possible, even though many might not think it's likely, it's still possible that these ultra-cool dwarves, some of the most common and faintest stars and not even quite stars in the universe, might be the best place to look for life after all. Anna Hughes, I want to thank you for joining us, and I want to thank all of our listeners of the Starts With a Bang podcast for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to give a shout-out to everyone who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Thomas Moore, Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Samir Kumar, Matt Conroe, Chris Shaw, Tim Graham, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Sean Foley, Pete Smoyer, Chris Jakutas, Stefan Bernegger, Pierre Franson, Jean Van Balaguyan, Charles Buchanan, Dominic Turpin, Hellbender, Punitive Expedition, Pavel Zuzelski, Rob Hansen, Pedro Texera, George Church, Vlad Pashkovsky, Sergey Gordienko, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Jens Kroger, Randall Slimak, Mike Ahmed Lee. Comsey, Jerry Wilterding, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kuzura, Mark Armstrong, Marcelo Barnaba, Jose Enrique, Rafal Wurschuk, 
Brian Terry, Danny, Patrick Dennis, Denier, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Philip Francis, Neil Flood, James Bryson Hyatt, Adam Robinson, Chuck Dannon, Paul Lester, Lalina Manenti, Gabrielle Nader, Sam Terzakian, Jeff Renike, Rushin Shah, Inga Strumke, Alan Parikh, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Paulina Barron, Dick Pills, Adrian Griffiths, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Arnulfo Zepeda, Tom Van Scotter, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Rich Weigel, James Nance, Tomas Walgren, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benhead, David Taschioni, Radek Nesbida, and Brainwise. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and I'll see you next time back here for more Starts with a Bang. Starts with a Bang.